0: We haven't had to, to look for employees really since pre-pandemic, really since 2019, probably. Um, and so, you know, that that's when we say company culture is that you provide an atmosphere for them that they don't mind talking about problems because you know they, they know that you're not going to just criticize them.
1: Welcome back to All Things Wood Floor, brought to you by Wood Floor Business and sponsored today by the Frank Miller Lumber Company. Uh, Wood Floor Business is the home of the Wood Floor Brilliant, which would be you, our contributors and listeners. Uh, this episode today I'm going to talk with Steve James, president and CEO of the Frank Miller Lumber Company out of Union City, Indiana. Frank Miller is a 120-year-old family-owned lumber company specializing in red and white oak lumber, and most exclusively in quarter uh, hardwoods. We're going to talk to Steve about his transition as CFO of General Motors up to uh, becoming part of our beloved industry. Uh, he's going to discuss management, leadership, and the things that are crucial to any business operation. On the table today, we got business, finance, operations, production, human resources, trees, lumber, and all the other stuff that uh, make us the best and brightest in the wood flooring world. I'm Steve Diggins. Welcome to All Things Wood Floor. Let's get to it. All right, Steve James, welcome to All Things Wood Floor.
0: Hey, I'm glad to uh, be on your show with you.
1: How have you been, sir? How's the new year treating you?
0: Hey, it's been good. Uh, a little cold here the, uh, the past couple days, but kind of looking. Uh... Forward to, to some springtime here.
1: Uh, speaking of which, where where are you? You're in it's it's Indiana.
0: Yep. So Union City, Indiana, right on the the border, kind of midway down, right about um, hour and a half from Indy.
1: Not not the uh, the Ohio Union City. We talked about this. There's a St. Louis and a St. Louis, a Union City and <laughs> a, a Union City. So nice they yeah, named a, it twice, yeah. right?
0: Yep. Well, we're 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 on a smaller scale than than St. Louis, right? So we have about twenty five hundred on the Indiana side and. Probably about 1,500 on the Ohio side, yeah.
1: And now we are with the Frank Miller Lumber Company, and this is exciting because we um, haven't done, have done a lot with manufacturing. We did one polyurethane, and all the rest were hardware flooring contractors, business people. So it, this is really good because we get a chance to talk to you from the manufacturing end of things. Can you just tell me a little bit about uh, Frank Miller Lumber Company today?
0: Sure. So we've been in business for 120 years. Uh, we're on the uh, fourth generation of owners. Uh, and, and we've been fortunate that they've uh, kind of really uh, allowed us to take the business um, and, and they they have the vision, but we kind of do the, do the day-to-day operations. Um, and there's only three of them in the business still. Uh, so, again, so we're, we're quartered and, and we do quartered and rift. Uh, we started back in uh, the probably the mid-'80s. Uh, the Japanese furniture company actually came here to the U.S. and was looking for people to do uh, rift and quartered uh, and mainly just quartered back then. Uh, lumber for them uh, for the japanese market okay and so we actually turned the the mill we were 100 percent dedicated there in the early years uh to the to the japanese market and then we've kind of diversified a little bit um since then uh and probably the japanese markets probably only about four or five percent of our total uh today uh had a big uh fire down in 1992 uh and then we moved the mill down here and we left uh, we call it uh, we have Two separate locations, right here, half a mile from each other. Uh, so the the kilns and the boilers and whatnot are down. We call it Plant One, and then the mill is here at Plant Two. The mill and and our shipping warehouse is here.
1: Now you're you uh, when you get you're married. You have what three? Is it three children?
0: Yep, I'm married, three kids, grandkids. One one grandkid, yeah. Uh, he's he's five, just turned five here last August. So. Um, yeah, he's he's a treat. Uh, so his kindergarten is his first year. So
1: you only got one more year to get him into hardwood flooring. So he just yeah, put the ticker on. <laughs> yeah. to get so set. Well, it I'm,
0: I'm sure that he he would love it. He he, he certainly uh, likes coming up to to Grandpa's house and and whatnot. So
1: when did you and Laura get married?
0: 1987 May 2nd.
1: 85. See that we're in the same graduating class, basically.
0: <laughs> we're pretty close, aren't
1: we? When did you get to Union City? Because you were with um, GM. Was that 2000 what?
0: So I left GM at the end of 2011. Okay, uh, I was actually at the uh, Duramax diesel engine uh, joint venture there in, in Moraine, um, and left there in, in 2011. Came to Frank Miller early 2012.
1: And then was it 2015? Checking my notes that, that that you became president and CEO.
0: Yeah, so I I, I started on as the CFO in 2012 and then was promoted to the CEO and president 15.
1: That's interesting. In a lumber company, bring a finance and numbers guy into manufacturing, and they must have seen something in you in leadership, organizational skills. There's a lot more to do on the top than crunch numbers. You're talking production of raw materials. It was your, is your background, did you go to what, you are in Michigan?
0: Yep, so I undergrad. Uh, so I got my uh, bachelor's in business administration from U of M. And then I got a master's in manufacturing management uh, from it was GMI at the time, and and then GM sold it and became Kettering University. And so that's kind of where where it started. So at GM, uh, basically, I, I always laugh. I had 22 different assignments in the 27 years that I was there. Um, but there, all your executives, we never had more than a three-year stint. And so I would I would bounce back from plants to headquarters. And I said, so the last one really there was. Uh, I was the CFO of the joint venture between uh, GM and Azuzu.
1: That's okay. And that was, what, 2012 into 15 into current day? Yeah. Okay. So
0: really, I, I came here. Uh, it was it was quite an interesting story because, like I said, I had just left GM and I ran into a recruiter there at the end of uh, – earlier it was the Christmas party in, in 2011. And she kind of joked, she goes, I had this perfect job for you. You could have been the CFO at Frank Miller. And we both kind of chuckled. And uh, I said, well, we'll never know, right? Because they've, they've already filled the position. And then she called me about a month later and said, hey, you know, the guy didn't take the, the, them up on the offer. Would you be interested in, in going there? And at the time, so our president uh, then was talking about a rebrand of the company, uh, trying to really kind of get back into some of the roots that, that we had here. And I thought it was intriguing. And what he wanted from me really was uh, we had a, 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 an ancient uh, payroll system we didn't have a very very good benefits uh, system, so all that stuff. So I was able to come in and kind of use my leverage that I had at GM to really um, change some of the processes that we had here. Um, and I said, then and, and he left in, in 2015, and at the time, really, I, I, I and I, I tell um, the the past chair, or vice chair, I guess she's called. Um, I'm like, she had no. I, I really didn't have any executive leadership other than the finance thing and she took took a chance on me she's very faith-based and and she saw something in me again at the time um i'm like i'm not sure i'm not sure what's going on but you know when you look at it from from my end of it you know manufacturing is just manufacturing whether whether you're producing an automobile a widget or, or lumber Okay. And, and I think the process here varies a little bit just from the, the time it takes for you to buy the, the log until you actually produce saleable lumber. Um, and so it's just the working capital is different this place versus any place else I've been. So I, I think that's the, I took the manufacturing process and really changed it here. Uh, interestingly enough, I, and I think I will not say everybody in the industry, but a lot of people that I talked to when I first came in here, you know, they they were under the same thing. where back in the in the 70s and 80s. You just bought logs when they're available, and you cut it up. And it was again, it was cheap. You weren't having all the alternative products that that are out there today. You didn't have the stave mills and the bourbon industry, and so it was just easy, right? It was easy to to make a good living just cutting as much production as you wanted to. Then obviously the the staves came in, really uh, jumped the price up, and, and and especially the white oak logs, and that's what we're kind of known for here um and, and so it's a different process right it's much more we're, we're driven by the data analytics piece of it and we've changed our erp systems to kind of do that so really you know for, for me it just took my manufacturing background and, and i have some leadership skills know, i'm a john maxwell uh coach and and whatnot and i just took that piece of it and brought that over to the team here so
1: i know it, what's the head count guy do at gm
0: You know, it it was funny. So that was my first – I spent the first two years there um, really just tracking headcount. I mean, think back in in the day, you know, GM was – at one time, they were the world's largest employer. And so I was actually part of the Chevy Pontiac Canada group. And I think we probably had almost a million employees between the the three countries. And so I used to track headcount by plant, by department – um, and I said, and at that time we were going through our first downsizing, really efforts, and so I was I was a headcount guy. Yep, <laughs> counting heads full time. Uh, I, I
1: saw it somewhere online or on your resume. I'm like, you were pretty. Adamant. I'm asking what, what a headcount guy. is. <laughs> but two of the things we're going to follow up on a little later that I wanted to go back to in your profile were um, one is the the John Maxwell leadership cope training and speaker. Um, and Now we're. we're We're going to get into that a little in detail because I think it's going to be helpful for what we're talking about. But how how did you get into... My company was a huge Maxwell. I have every book on the shelf. And out of spite alone, I read every single one of them. But I... Years ago in school, you'd get a book, and they'd say, make sure you turn it in, and it better be pristine. And I never learned anything. When I got to college, I would buy the books and highlight the living crap out of them and make yeah. notes in them. I did that with my Maxwell books, and there's a, there's a lot of information. There's some really good success training there. What led you to doing the Maxwell programs?
0: Yeah, you know, it was. it's really interesting because, like I said, when I was with GM, they did a lot of of executive training, right, leadership training, and so we had Maxwell and Blanchard, and Zig Ziglar Temple and Simon Sinek and, yeah. and, and all those guys, and so we went through pretty much an extensive training program through them, uh, try to improve our leadership skills at, at GM. And so it was kind of funny. So when I came here to, to Frank Miller, uh, same thing there. And, and what I found throughout my career is we have some really good managers. We don't have a very uh, good leaders in, in most of the organizations, especially in manufacturing. Um, and so when I when I got here. Uh, it was probably maybe when I just took over as as a president, we had a little bit of a culture issue here. Again, obviously, it's a it's a it's a really tough job. We were traditional manufacturing guys where we gave out, you know, basically, you know, you have a job to do. And if you're not here and, and the kind of the, the, you know, tell them what to do kind of thing. And I said, we have to be better leaders. Uh, I looked at the time and I and I and I told him, I says, look, I said, we can say whatever we want about this young generation. All right. They're they're lazy. They're always on their cell phones. But whatever it is, I said. But if they are are willing to fill out an application, come into our facilities, then it's on us if they leave right. because it's not it's not on them. It's not because they're lazy. It's because of our culture. And so I really started to to, to change that culture. So we didn't we, we kind of got rid of the manager stuff and we became leaders. And so the first book I I, I, I uh, taught my leadership group was the five levels of leadership. That's right? the best one. It is Again, It's very simple. You got that. You're it's doing do. fine, right? And so I I, I took that, and then um, it was kind of interesting because my HR director at the time went to this uh, Sherm program. She kind of went there for the monthly review, and they had this Maxwell guy come in and, and talk to them. And, and she's like, Steve, and she like, I, I can't believe this, but this guy is actually talking about all the same stuff that you're 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 um, doing with us. Maybe we should get in. And we had, we actually had a millwork company at the time and we were struggling in, in the millwork business, which says maybe we can bring him in and, and we can teach these guys the, the 21 levels of, of, of leadership as well, sure. uh, which is, again, it's another great one of his books. And so I brought him in and he's like, Hey, Steve, did you know, did you realize that there's actually a program that we have all these, you know, that Max was training a lot of us to be these speakers, trainers, and coaches. And, and I'm like, never heard of it before. And so I got involved with it. He's like, man, you'd be a great, uh, you know, speaker. And so I, I did. So in 2019, I actually became certified. And, uh, and in fact, I'm gonna I'll be with John here uh, next week uh, at his. Uh, he has a, a twice a year conference, and so I'll actually get to spend some time with him and his, his staff. And so that's kind of, you know, it, it pulled everything full circle for me. Is you know, I think he's still the best author on leadership. He makes it very simple like you said there's there's tons of books out there on leadership. most of them are pretty complex and they're selling something. you know John just tries to to simplify everything and so it's easy to teach for, for me and so yeah that's kind of how I got into it. I
1: know I lived for years in the self-help aisle, and I think when decades later I came across Maxwell, the idea was, wow, Today, if you don't have the time and people don't even read 144 characters, he covers everybody and everything in this abridged version. It's all there. And yeah. you can yeah, use it like a like a resource guide. You just go back over the stuff and back over it. There's something useful in all of that. Large corporations tend to do quality control groups and meetings and things. Some people don't get it. They don't like it. They don't grasp it. But the people that do, I believe, become leaders. And like you said, every company needs leadership, not just management. Yeah,
0: yeah. The, the, you know, and the cool thing with Maxwell, like you said, is that you can go back and reread it and you'll pick up nuggets that you didn't have because you you're, you weren't ready for it the first time that you read it. And, and again, so I always try to in his books, what's the three main nuggets I want to get out of that? And so I'll, I'll, I'll flip through them. And here's the three nuggets I need to go practice and then kind of reread it and, you know. So
1: you're also on the RCU board and the, what are you on the board of directors for the YMCA. Yeah,
0: so actually I, I just left the RCU and the what YMCA. Is, what C-
1: is the RCU? I don't know what that
0: is. So so the RCU, it's kind of interesting, and, and we're unique here in Indiana, that they combined the economic development, tourism, and chambers into one organization. So I was actually, when I started with it, I guess it was, I was in it for 10 years or so. So yeah, yeah. Um, Probably 2015, 2014, I I started getting involved in that. And we were actually just an economic development. So I was on the economic development board. And then, again, we just had this visionary, again, talking about a a great leader, and and she started doing some research. And there was a few other ones that were out there that actually combined the three different uh, groups into one. I mean, think about it, especially when, so our whole county is only 25,000 residents. All right. And so when you have that small of a county, it's pretty hard to have a separate chamber a separate economic development and a separate tourism, and really we changed it from trying to chase um, manufacturing and our economic development to say, Hey you know, what? if we provide a quality of life, manufacturers will come and so yeah, so I was kind of on the initial set of of getting all that set up and I said I was a chairman of the board there for uh, a few years and and i said but I've, I've relinquished that uh, title uh, and then I was on the yMCA for ten years as well, president there, just the local uh, again, it's really important for, for me is that someplace for our youth to go. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, if we talk about that, that's kind of my passion right now is getting involved in the schools and really um, just understanding what some of the kids want, right? And, and, and you know, we've been very fortunate here that at least the administrators, and we have five school corps in 25,000, which is too many, but whatever, it's all good. and But they're starting to, to really um, combine some of the resources together. Um, but, but there's, I, you know, we've, we've changed it where, you know, at one time it was looked at, down upon to go out and get a, a skilled trade job. Right. Is that, Oh, you, you know, Johnny's got to go to college and Johnny's got to do this. And, and then we, we lack all these skilled trades people. And so we really try to have this, this change in the mindset there that college isn't meant for every kid. And so the so the, the, the twelve that that want to just do hands on jobs, it's okay, it's okay that they come and they have a a, a spot where again like I said you know we've changed the culture here, is they have a spot they fit in, uh, it's really cool. So our um, we had an intern here, um, I guess so he's he graduated last year uh, in our maintenance group, which you know is unheard of. You don't get a lot of kids that uh that A the company a lot of me in their maintenance group and uh so we, we you know we made sure that we were we were following all the stuff but I got him in there and it, I tell you what it was really cool because most of our maintenance guys are are you know in their fifties and sixties, you know, kinda on the horizon of their career. But to watch this interaction with this young kid that had welding skills and he, you know and the guys were teaching them you know some some of the um mechanical stuff, some electrical stuff and he was kind of showing them welding. And it was really cool. So we actually um, – he's at welding school right now, but he'll come back and he'll be part of our, our maintenance team here. You know, you know, hopefully for the next you know, 30, 40 years. So
1: You know, we've talked so, yeah. about it on, in other podcasts about the, the, <clears throat> the kids going to college and advanced education and this and the other thing and how the trades suffer. But, you know, what, I am starting to see things lately when I talk to people, the end result – one of the good things is these guys coming up, working with their hands are making about 20 times what I did.
0: Exactly, like, I mean, and people who have yeah. the money are willing to pay it. <laughs> well, you know that—that's the thing is that you get a four-year degree and you're in debt a hundred thousand dollars, and all of a sudden you, you come out there and you're probably making seventy, eighty thousand or so if, if you got this degree. Uh, our school systems are, are pretty cool here. Because within like six months to, to a year, they can actually have journeyman cards and, and whatnot and the, these programs that they got for these kids. So it's really exciting for the kids to come out debt-free and, as I said, making, making a really good salary starting off the block.
1: Well, I, I know. I, I heard a radio broadcast somewhere a long time ago, and um, they were talking about income and, and working with their hands, et cetera. And this caller called in. He said, I'm a plumber. I have a twin brother. He goes, he went to college, I went to tech school. He goes, my brother is a doctor now, he's employed, he makes great money. And he's so far into his college debt, he goes, I am a plumber, I already have my lake house. And he visits me <laughs> and says, I'd like to have one of those myself one day. This is not a race, right? There's, there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, yeah, I, I tell you, that when I was in school, my mother was really academic and spoke several languages, but my dad was a, a Marine street, tough kid. I took every shop class for every writing class I took. And I'm so lucky I took those shop classes. I wouldn't have known how to do flooring, plumbing, electrical, whatever. They're great skills to have. I think you're absolutely right.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting. I've done all these podcasts and I talk to people. Like and they give me a nice little list. They say, who would you like to talk to? And then we suggest this person. And they're all the best and brightest of the industry. And the weird thing is, when I ask them where they're from, they're always from where, you, Indiana, Illinois, Chicago, Wisconsin. Is that the heartland of flooring? Are you seeing this? I see so many people, people from Boston. They go, oh, I was born and raised in Indiana.
0: Yeah, you, you know, it's amazing. So um, we're part of all the associations. And and the, the biggest one attended is always the uh, IHLA here in Indianapolis, right? So Indiana what, what is that, IH- Lumberman's Association uh, just had our convention here a couple of weeks ago. And, and there's like 1,100 people there, and so yeah. So when you look at that, I mean, you know, we at the Hardwood Manufacturers Association, you know, we got a couple hundred, maybe maybe two or three hundred, and and the national, even the, the NHLA, uh, doesn't get the, the the crowds that we get there. So I I do think that it's something about really the Midwest, and and like I said you don't have to be from Indiana to to come to the to the convention, because I see a lot of people. like I said you know Kentucky, Tennessee, Illinois, Ohio. Uh, Michigan. So it, it's just really that the camaraderie there. And I think, you know, for me, that's what I love about the lumber industry It is that, you know, people just are, are really genuine and, and they want to provide value to you. It uh, give the, you advice.
1: It's at the LA part of it. It's the, it's the Lumbermen's Association, right? Yeah, yep. I used to speak and train for the NRLA, which is a Northeast Retail Lumbermen's Association. Volunteer, I love it. They would let me teach the flooring class, and I'd have to give an exam, and they would grade me on how I did. But it, they collectively do that everywhere just to keep the lumber in, uh, industry relevant. I know during COVID, I didn't miss a day's work. We were considered to be important to the structure.
0: You know, and I, I truly believe that was uh, one. It's the culture that we built here, but two is that we didn't miss a day uh, with uh, the, the plan operating to COVID. Because I mean, I, I watched a lot of them that did, and they couldn't get the people back. No, um, our guys were happy to come to work. Um, like I said, it really kind of get out of it. I think that's that was really the only normal part of our life for that period was coming to work, and, and we did the same thing. And so I, I, I agree with you. I think that was it was really important that we got associated. With the you know um, whatever they called it the, the valuable worker, then I know I was just company. trying
1: to think what were we there was a name for it like
0: I know I I'm, I'm we were important
1: lost. I don't remember yeah there was a name <laughs> for it I'm I'm trying to forget COVID I think it helped me forget it because you get COVID fog but I would like to forget that that even happened um, one of the things I picked up from some of your podcasts your writing et etc and I think a lot it might have started with your GM work is what, what was what is a gain share program.
0: So it's it's interesting. It's it's I would say it's a variation of profit sharing. Okay. And so what it did is at, at GM, we would always look at at what can we do, what can we offer, and obviously we had the unions there, what could we offer them to to build in some efficiencies? Okay. And so yeah, so that was one of the, the, the things that uh, when I interviewed here, as started a gain share program. Uh here and, and like I said, so they asked me to evaluate it, which was kind of funny. I think that's really what happened because uh, me and my boss at the time ne- didn't necessarily see the eye to on, eye on a lot of things, and that was one of them. He brought me in here to to do this gain share program, and, and, and when I told him, I'm like, I don't think you fully understand what gain share is. Okay, gain share is says I have too many employees, right, and I need to reduce the amount of employees I have in my mill. For example, for us. And so then if you reduce the amount of employees and the ones that were left would get some of the profits that you got from actually reducing and, and, and making it efficient. That's kind of the, the gist of, of gain share. Uh, but when I, when I came here, I'm like, look, your, your VP of operations is on the green chain stacking lumber. I'm pretty sure that you don't have guys falling over themselves uh, on, on a gain share program. I see when we look at it, you know, our, our material cost is probably over 60% of our total cost of the operation here, Okay, which you know, in manufacturing, that's a big deal, right? There, there's, as I say, we have two levers, right? We have selling price and we have log cost. And and, and then we, I call it dials, right? We can fine tune the dial on our manufacturing uh, costs that we have here, but it's really those two levers. And and, and we really put a lot of emphasis on, on trying to get the data around that that says we don't have a whole lot of, extra cost you Now, obviously we can always get more efficient but it's one or two heads it's not you know 50
1: well i want to talk a little bit about frank miller lumber just as a little bit more historically and then i got a whole bunch of questions for you based on the operation but what, what was there i'm assuming there was a frank miller or there is a frank miller or there's a miller family
0: yeah um so frank miller uh actually his dad started it uh and then frank took over shortly after his dad passed um, and then, so then Frank, um, had his, uh, daughter and, and, um, son that ran it. And then, so, yeah, so Frank was kind of number one and, or number two, but it took over from his dad and then, uh, Martha and Robert were third generation from, from Frank and then their, their children run it now.
1: So are, are you regional or global? What's the scope of what you do?
0: Yeah. So we actually sell into 35 different countries, um, but yeah. we're still probably um, 20% uh, export. So it's still mostly domestic. Uh, but we reach into, uh, like I said, Japan. Uh, we try to stay out of China, but we still send some low-grade into China, Vietnam. Uh, have some, some um, customers in Australia, some in Germany. So, so yeah, and, and we're starting a, um, a project there in Mexico. So, yeah, so we're global. Uh, but like I said, most of it, we try to... Stay as much domestic as we can. We we just like the lumber staying here and really providing jobs uh, for 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 you know a Americans still.
1: And these these places, they're just buying uh, logs, raw material. I'm assuming not flooring, or is it just the lumber?
0: No. So so yeah, we just sell rough end lumber. Oh, okay, gotcha. So we have the basically you know um, we call it four quarter right. So it's one inch, one and a quarter, one and a half, two inches. Um, and then we'll sell that mainly through a distribution network, and then they'll pass it on so the guys from their customers buy packs at a time. We do have some flooring customers that we send direct to. We do have some furniture manufacturers that we send direct to. Uh, Our retail store has some uh, – they have a casket maker, and they have some millwork companies that, that buy less than truckload out of there. So, But, yeah.
1: It is part of your job to kind of help. The big thing today what people talk about is their corporate culture. And I just did a seminar and people said, well, what's corporate culture? I said, how does your stomach feel on Sunday night when you've got to go into the office? Even worse, how does it feel on Friday when you leave the office? Can yeah. you come in and say, are you excited about going to work? Are your employees, are the people you're leading is your group? What is your focus on with with um, Frank Miller Lumber on, is that part of your job to develop a corporate culture and kind of keep it in place?
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that's really been the, the I, I would say, takes up most of my time or took up most of my time um, before is really, so what, what I consider that, like you said, is, is what keeps employee, uh, I mean, I, I, I tell our, our managers all the time, like our job is to figure out how to get the employee to come to work versus stay at home in bed. Right. That's our job. And, and what would it make, what would entice them to come to work versus stay at home? Sure. And, and, and one of it really is, how we treat them, right? We treat the employee uh, that we provide. I, all the leadership team are really servants to them, right? We provide the tools for them to do their job, uh, and, and we listen to them uh, it, with an empathetic, not a sympathetic, but an empathetic ear. So I am. Uh, I still go out on the floor uh, daily, uh, and so I'm always accessible to them if they have issues or whatnot. So I I I have that interaction with them. You know, we actually bring in whether it's a food truck or, or or something. We'll bring in and we'll we'll give them lunch once a month uh, to do that. And it's the little things. As I tell everybody, I said, look, it's not about what our wages are uh, because our wages are competitive, but they're not they're not that great uh, for the the amount of work that they have to do. Uh, but it's how they come in here. Like I said, our guys will tell you they like the little gift cards to McDonald's. They like the lunches and whatnot. I shouldn't say more than I get paid, but again, I can only pay them. I can only give them an increase once a year. Sure. These little things I can do on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And they really like that. And you know, for the, for the longest time we, we were afraid to, I'll say, tell the truth. Right. Uh, I I said, our our folks knew that, right. They, they, they know, they know when the log yard is empty, either it's wet or we don't have any cash. (laughs) Right, they know they they know when the the inventory you know is, is through the roof, and they know that sales are are slow. And I said, and it's okay to tell them that. And so I'm very transparent with both the owners and the employees. That says, hey, look, you know what? We are trying to do the best we can. We make the decisions based on what we know, but we know that we're not 100 percent perfect. And it's amazing what kind of response you get from from the team and really from the the guys out there you know, they are, they are excited to see me. And, and that's just kind of, it says that we, we've we created a brand here for that. As we, we've been, you know, our, we haven't had to, to look for employees really since pre pandemic, really since 2019, probably. Um, and so, you know, that that's when we say company culture is that you provide an atmosphere for them that they don't mind talking about problems because you know they, they know that you're not going to just criticize them. And it, it's funny. So here, I actually, we we've changed the 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 terminology because we don't have problems anymore. We have opportunities, and I said every again we'll have challenges. But every challenge, if we look at it from a positive frame of mind, it no longer becomes a problem because the problem is someone else's issue that they got to deal with. An opportunity says, "Hey, you know what? Yes, we 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 did something. Something broke. Something did this. Whatever. You know, Johnny didn't come to work today. But it's like if you look at that, say, okay, how can we?" Okay. We make Johnny come to work or how can we fix it? Right. How can we fix it better than what it was before it broke? Right. And, and I think when you have that kind of mindset, it's pretty easy to get people to, to, to follow along.
1: Well, like they say they, where there's crisis, there's crossroads. Some people yeah. just look at everything like that what was it? John Lennon said, there's no problems, only solutions. It's a better way. Listen, you can, I, I see this all the time. People are complaining. They're looking. I'm like, you know, uh, there's weeds in your garden. Don't say there's no weeds, there's no weeds, no weeds, they'll go away. Pick the suckers out and move on. People do this all the time. And I think that leadership and management, good ones, we live for that. that you can hear the buzz going, and there's teeing me up. They want me to be the home run hitter. That's what you're here for. I'm yeah. here to, this is my job. I can shine now. Let's go take care of the tough stuff. I think, is it difficult? Like for you, it, I think everything comes down to leadership. And with your Maxwell training, it's got to be helpful. But is it easy to bring in an IT guy and give him the Maxwell hug? Or is that is that a tricky thing to do? Those number cruncher <laughs> guys
0: are a little rough. You, you, you know, and, uh, it's a great story because my IT guy actually uh, just got certified in, in John Maxwell last year. And I told him, I said, Hey, you understand that you're going to go down to, to, to Orlando, and and there's probably twenty five, three thousand of us is going to be in this room and in, in, in this conference, and it's not just going to be one person that's going to hug you as you're going down. You're going to get like a hundred hugs in and, the elevator. And, IT <laughs> and, and I know kind of you know how how they are, and I'm like, are you okay with that? He goes, I, I'm preparing myself, but I think I'm good, <laughs> right? And so I, I think you know, and that's the great thing with Maxwell. I think that they, they they are so genuine in what they do that it's not a problem, right? It's not like trying to go up and hug a stranger, right? It's like they want to be your friend. They want to, to help you. And I think once once you see that, you're like, okay, I, I, you know what? I can let myself get a hug once in a while. It's okay. Well, it's not going to hurt you. Buddy. I think a lot
1: of people, <laughs> they look at situations like that and or groups or organizations that are trying to do good things and everybody thinks – Wow, that's a cult. Those people are weird. We're looking as leaders to find some answer for all of us that works for all of us that makes work more pleasurable. Like you said, when you're trimming the building down to its leanest form, I like to say, I don't just need bodies, any valued employees. And then once you've got them and and they know they want to get out of bed, they want to be there. They want to be there. Make it great for them, as as good as possible. And when there is a problem, bring the whole team in. Make it as. I've seen management sit down and try to solve every problem themselves when they have the brightest people. They could get them all on a phone call and say, what do we got, people? Throw it at me. Take those great ideas. I think you're right bringing them together, at least with something like Maxwell. Or, or do you recommend a lot of books? I do that all the time. If I read a great book, I ask people to read it. Or we'll share a little book report week.
0: Yeah, you, you know, I, I, obviously the the Maxwell works well because it's easy easy to train them. But there's a couple of other you know really good ones. Um, I you know I think a game changer that we haven't got there yet, but is, is Patrick Lincioni's the Working Genius uh, model there? Because it, it, there's so many levels to the Working Genius, that a it tells what type of work that you like to do and why people get burnt out. What what happens is they get burnt out because they're doing something. That's not in their genius that they don't like to do, right? Sure. And, and there's always things that you don't like to do, but there's things that you do better and things that give you passion and energy that you're doing versus things that, that are not. Thank you. I and know,
1: we'll talk about yeah. it a little later, but you also recommended to me, I think one was chasing failure and the other was, I think, Maxwell, yeah. is it falling forward? Again, yeah. good. Listen, if you're in business, you can't have every tool in the shape. Go learn from these other people. Find out what makes them successful. It's amazing what you do adopt from these things.
0: Yeah, you know, and that's the other great thing with, with Maxwell, he's always bringing in other people, right? I mean, you know, we we've we've got to meet the, um Dave Ramsey and um Jeez, uh there's so many that uh, Jeff Henderson, uh, all those guys are are just uh, amazing um folks that that you get to to listen to them as well. I and mean, Ryan Leek was one that that he's the, the the um Chasing Failure. He was on uh Live the Lead that that we host here last year. And so you're always getting all these guys come in. You know, even uh um how Perry came in and it was a speaker with with John one time and uh Carly Fioroni. I mean all those folks are, are are part of his network, right? That he can bring them in and, and, and give that. And like you said, there's just as much knowledge you can get, uh I have found that same thing is is that there's a nugget or two from all of them, right? That you want to try and, and, and replicate as, as best you can. Well, to so make it genuine and authentic, but but there's lots of stuff out there that that you have.
1: I think what what you're saying is you're bringing that leadership approach. You got to be the band leader.
0: Yeah, you, you know, I mean, you, you, you talk about that, and I, th- I think we we t- we touched on this before, but it's that it's that you know finding the right person. And finding the seat on the bus, like you said, I need some sales guys to sell, I need operations guys to to, to go manufacture, but what's really I think and what we've changed it kind of to the next level here is we're looking what fits our culture right what if a guy has the right um, character and and things that we're looking for uh, you know I, I I mean i I, I don't know if I, I coined it or not, but I like the phrase sometimes we change the seat on the bus to fit the guy, right? Is that we want him in the right seat, but sometimes, you know, especially, and I think that's where manufacturing gets kind of in the weeds a bit, is because, well, we have this function and you gotta perform that that function and, and do all this other stuff. And so we're looking at it, and I think that's what our philosophy was here before, is that I don't care who it is, that this guy just gotta provide that function. And I always say, you know what, this, the, some of the guys that we have aren't the best technicians, right? but they are great for Frank Miller Lumber. And, and and so we have to adjust what their strengths are. And that's a lot of what that working genius is. I have to adjust it to their strengths because then I can pour a lot more out of it and they can feel more value added, right, from them. And they feel more appreciative and that and they're they're adding something to the the company. And I don't think that in manufacturing, we, we haven't really explored that that um, dynamic yet. And that's what really we're trying to do here as well, um, to explore that dynamic, because I think it's really important that, the old traditional manufacturing jobs still need, we still need to get work done, right? You still need to to, to pile boards. And you still need to do all that stuff, but how we do it is really on us. And like you said, it's when I get everybody together that says, hey, you know what? I know we've been doing this for the last 20 years, but have we ever thought about doing this? You know, like, hey, that's a great idea. We should go test it, right? And and I think that's what we're trying to do here as well is, is what is it that we've been doing that it's causing us a pain for the last 20 years? And like, does it have to be a pain? It doesn't really have to be. We've, we've allowed it to be.
2: This episode is sponsored by Frank Miller Lumber. For more than 120 years, Frank Miller Lumber has been a family-run business continuously operating at its 20-acre founding location in rural Union City, Indiana. Frank Miller Lumber is among the world's largest quarter sawn hardwood lumber producers specializing in the manufacture of quarter sawn hardwood lumber. With the bulk of its production in white oak and red oak, other quarter-sawn hardwood species include cherry and hard maple. Being part of Frank Miller Lumber means being part of more than a century of proud history and a thriving and growing culture. Now let's get back to our talk with Frank Miller Lumber's Steve James.
1: When you're working with all these systems, especially in lumber, is, are, are there systems? Is it just pencil sharpening or are we talking lean manufacturing? Explain lean manufacturing. That's got to be something that's more in your wheelhouse
0: sure um so for for us here and again I'll, I'll just go back to the the team like said so we have a lot of great minds uh, on the team, but for us it's it's really about um it's it's doing the margin analysis, okay, so that's really what lean manufacturing is. It says, all right what what is what can I do to to reduce my cost in manufacturing? either reduce my costs or increase my volume, right? But I mean, that's kind of what, what lean is. And then the, the, the piece of how you get lean really is organizational tools. It, it, it's making sure that I'm not taking, you know, 15 steps to do, you know, step one and have to walk in the new step two. It's like, hey, let's make sure that we're in sequential order, that we're the most efficient in doing our job. But for us really here, like I said, is is that we just, uh, I guess it, it feels like it was just yesterday. I guess it's been a year and a half ago we switched over to to DMSI's agility and ELIMS system here, which is a lumber system. And and really uh, the agility is more on the sales uh, side of it. Um, And then really ELIMS is kind of your inventory. So we actually switched over that uh, about a year and a half ago. And so the cool thing now for us is I can track, I say actual costs and it's pretty close to accurate, but so I can track all the log costs in a specific bundle through the whole process before we used to only be able to look at it green and then it went into the kilns and then we re repackaged it and we, we lost all the cost. So now we actually can keep the cost associated with that bundle. So when I go to sell it, I know what my exact margin is that I put into it. Uh, and I think that's, that's really been a game changer for us as I, as I used to talk to my CFO and, and, and it was, it was kind of funny at the time. He's like, I'm not the guy to, to bring in a new system for you. If you want if you want that, I'm not the guy. And so we went through several month ends and, and and for the financials. And I'm like, hey, are you gonna guess what the number is this month? Because we don't know. And we had the old system had sixteen variables, we had standard cost, and, and you had no idea until you found out what your average selling price was, what you what went through the mill and, and, and all that stuff. And so we had really sixteen variables that we could never predict. And so now we basically have uh, a few, we, we, you know, we still have some, some ways to go in some of our analysis, but you know, now you're looking at yield. All right. What's my yield coming through? And I can see it real time on if the yield's up or down. And then I look and I, I do the re- root cause analysis on that that says, hey, are my guys grading um, and, and um, scaling right? Uh, if, so if there's, they're off there, then obviously it's going to affect my yield you know, what are we doing through the, the mill here? Are we are we chopping up too much? Is it go, going through the, the trimmer and the edgers? So we can actually pinpoint some of those costs now and start looking at some of those variables. Same thing on, on the, the drying side as we look at shrinkage, right? So we know when the shrinkage is up, we've, we've figured out something that's happened in the process, and we start going back and doing that deep dive. And so really for us, it's allowed to put numbers to, to everything that we're doing and versus before it was just a process, right? I had a drying process. I had a, it, you know, and, and so all of a sudden we've, we've kind of looked at it. Everything now is about what that bundle costs uh, versus the price that we're selling it for. And so it's, it's much more accurate. Uh, still, like I said, we still have some tweaks to it, but I mean, like I said, for us, it's been a game changer. You know, in, in fact, as, Oh, go ahead.
1: No, no, I uh, just, asking. yeah, because I think in lean manufacturing, a lot of people think it's just sharpening pencils, going in cut costs, cut, 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 and giving nothing back to the system. But, right, you have to look at, well, we need certain tools and investment to make a profit here.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, because even at GM, uh, because I laughed at our lean manufacturing there, because, again, theoretically, it's always great until you actually start looking at the execution, and, and like you said, so lean manufacturing was to us, is that we had a scorecard, you know, that, that we filled out yep. every week, and uh, I better be green on it, uh, or I'm going to get in trouble. And I, I don't want to be in trouble, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pencil whip it to be green. To be green. And, and so what I've told them here is that look, the the principle of lean manufacturing is great. I don't have to have it down where you're actually taking more time to fill out the paperwork than what you're actually achieving. And the results that you're getting from being lean. And so we've kind of taken a, I'll call it a hybrid pr- approach here, is that we're pretty lean, um, but it's not to the point where I have to document everything and make sure that we're all, you know, our, our, our donut wheels and all that stuff from, from the lean manufacturing process that Toyota uses isn't applicable here. And it's not applicable in most places.
1: It, when they're choosing single-ply toilet paper and shutting every other light off, I know we got a problem. <laughs>
0: You know, and it was—I I, I will tell you—that that—that's a funny story through my GM days, because at one time, so after I after I did the headcount thing, then I went into the budgets, and and again, so at the I think I had 26 different plants I had the budget for. Well, we used to have them; they they used to have to fill out 156 lines of budget, okay, for the manufacturing cost, no. and of those, whatever it was, 20 of them were how much toilet paper to use, how much paper did you use, how many of them. Um, uh, and I'm like look you're letting you're letting millions of dollars out the door for all the other stuff that you're doing and we're focusing on paper and pencils and toilet paper that's ridiculous right
1: <laughs> people are going to bring their own Uh, Let me, I'm going to give you like a three-parter here because I want to talk about the the actual lumber portion of it. But when we're talking about what we have been, the Frank Miller team and and your organizational skills at that, what is it like with your your team? What are their primary goals or what do you expect from them as a team each day? And how do you know it's working?
0: So for us, um, and again, we keep on refining this. So I have a scorecard that we review the scorecard every month. And so it's really what our our organizational goals were, you know, so it's your, um, basically it's your sales, right? It's your cost per unit. Uh, it's your safety, you know, uh, throughput, stuff like that. But what we we've done here recently, uh, you know, to, to kind of get to your point is we've developed smart goals because I believe this is the new normal for, for at least for, for our portion of the lumber industry. You know, you had the, the, um, the pre-COVID years where it wasn't bad. I mean, it was kind of good. Then you had the COVID years and when, then you had the explosion after COVID. And now we have this new normal that that we have to look at what do we, what do we need to do to continue to be sustainable, not just for the next couple of years, but what is it that's going to take to get us 25 years to you know, hopefully 50 years and, and what process are we putting in place? And I think that's the... Uh, So for us, so we have the the scorecard, so I still measure all the the pertinent stuff, but everybody now has a a smart goal. Like, again, sales has to increase two customers in the Southwest region. Our marketing says, hey, we have to have a Red Oak campaign going here. We have to do, we send out samples to that. You know, our our HR team, you know, what is it, uh, for me, when we look at, uh, when we have to replace a job, and and we certainly, for us, and we still have... I think it's probably two-thirds of our salary employees are over 50 years old. So at some point in time, there has to be a succession plan rolling out here. Um, How can we get young talent in here? And and I believe that, you know, you're starting to see people going off of Facebook and and off that stuff, and they're they're having these reels. I said, you know what? We still have the billboards, but the billboards is only going to get a few people in here. I go to the schools, but they really are interested in what does the job look like? And so we're actually creating like employment videos for for you know new hires and, and whatnot to see hey, they can kind of see the thing. So we're just producing a, a maintenance video here. So that's on her agenda. There, it's on her agenda to to look at the the benefits that we're offering our, our folks. You know, finance again, same thing. How can we how can we lean up the organization? How can we use some technology in here uh, through that stuff? So they all have their roles. And then really, we try to meet weekly and talk about where we're at from our SMART goals. And then what does the vision look like uh, going forward? I and mean, we do SWOT analysis. Uh, so I'm very into what does it look like from a visionary standpoint.
1: And let's talk a bit about the actual products and what you do, because I think you guys are a little bit different when you're talking the lumber that you do. Um, is Frank Miller, is, is it all quarters on? Everything's quarters on?
0: Yeah, so we actually—I I should say—it's not all okay. um, here at the mill. it's, Yeah, so we we quarter sawn everything. So we don't we don't have any plains on at all. Okay. So we yeah. So we quartersawn. We produce the quartered and rift, and that's what we sell out of the the mill here. I said we have a brokerage firm that actually buys uh, lumber from other mills, pretty much down in, in, in Tennessee and whatnot. Um, and then we have our retail store that brings in some exotics and some plywoods and whatnot. But but everything we do in the mill is quarter sawn. Uh, and I said we do, we do four quarter five six and, and eight are pretty much our our standard products. I think we're one of the few, uh, other than the Amish, uh, probably that do the the thick stock in in quartersawn.
1: I used to teach class in quartering. Like we do a whole section on hardwood flooring. I said, okay, today I'm going to explain quartersawn lumber to you, and why someone will say, well, you know, I got Taylor flooring, Taylor lumber flooring yeah. is eight dollars, but I can go to lumber liquidators. They have fully quartersawn for you know dollar eighty nine. Industry fall-off accumulated quarter sawn is different than the company that takes the log and the time to quarter the blank material so that it is milled into quarter material. Give me a little difference as to what you're doing there that's different. Why is there such a demand for rift and quartered, and why is it that rift is less available, if I got that right?
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Well, if you think about the quarter process, so we actually take the log, we cut it in half, uh, and then we'll set half on the, on the carriage and then we'll take the other half and we'll quarter it. And so what happens is I should have a, a thing in here. I, 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 but, but anyway, so we actually, we cut. So the first cuts are basically quarter, right? So you'll cut the um, perpendicular to the thing. So you get the ray like in it. Uh, and then we flip it and then we cut it again. And so by the time you get into the riff lumber, it's really the, the edges, right? And so it's, it's all, it's smaller than quartered for, for the most part. Um, and so that's why it's in more demand. So of all the lumber we cut, it's probably about 20 to 80 uh, rift a quarter. Uh, and, and I said, and, and for whatever reason, uh, and it's interesting because when we started quarter sawing for the Japanese, rift was looked at like as a defect. Right. right. Really, rift's only become popular probably since I, I started here at, at at Frank Miller in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and, and again, it's 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 amazing, but everybody wants that straight-grained Rift look and their flooring and some of their, their millwork and, and and cabinetry and whatnot. Um, so again, I, and I think it's all, you know, I, I think really we, we spent a lot of money early on educating the architects and the designers on why Quarterson would be much more valuable Then the plane's
1: on. You bring up a good point. When people call a hardwood flooring distributor, and I hear them get that call, I'll say, "Send them down to me." Are you an architect, or or, and looking for structural stability, vertical stability, or are you a designer that wants to see fleck and flake? I mean, I've done a floor where the homeowners come in and go, "Oh, why is that board? That's ugly." I and mean, my partner just picked it out as the greatest board on the floor and we put it right in the middle of their dining room. Maybe it wasn't a good idea. Well, why is it like why is that focus for your company? You said, you know, we're going to just crank out quarters on. I think that's a good call. But why?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, there's only I, I think if, if we've done some studies, it's really hard to get data on, on a lot of it because there's a lot of Amish and, and whatnot that quarters on. don't necessarily report and obviously we don't report um, numbers and, and how much we're actually our volume is. But well, we're estimating that, that probably of all the hardwood lumber, probably only 2 to 3% is is quartered and rift. Most of it is in the plain sawn. And if you think about it from a manufacturing standpoint, we kind of alluded to a little bit, it's much easier to block up a log. And then, and then at the end, I have a tie or a mat or whatever that I can just sell that as well. as where when, when we're done with the, the, the last piece of, of rift lumber, we're throwing the rest of it away. I shouldn't say that throwing away. It actually goes into our, our chip pile, right? And, and we sell. And I guess that's the other thing is that we actually sell 100% of the log. So we have mulch and, and, and chips and, and, and dust as well. But, but yeah, so we, we actually chip that up and, and sell it uh, to the, the paper companies. And we have some pellet mills that we send to, but, yeah.
1: Do you do different species? There's pretty much red oak and white oak.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we've dabbled in walnuts uh and we do a little bit in in uh, hard maple maple's hard to uh, get that's and, really right, a tough and, one to get yeah yeah in fact i think we we got uh we're, we're buying the last of the logs and we'll cut it up here probably in the next couple of weeks and and, ha- and but again it's not a lot of it's not a lot of logs and not a lot of lumber and then we used to do a lot of cherry but uh i think we we, we have cherry that we cut five years ago that we still uh is on the shelf here uh you know cherry's just not in the demand you, you know you, you look at it and obviously with your oaks uh, it, it really the 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 flex sticks out much more so in, in your oaks than, than in your oaks than it does in most of the other products. I said so we try to do walnut. There's really isn't a premium price that people want to pay for the walnut, you know, because. It's so dark, you really can't see that, that grain pattern anyway. So
1: you know, it's, it's funny. the um, I, I see these commercials where they say, our bourbon with the, the, the caramel malt coloring, and uh, you got it in a burnt white oak barrel. There's no way that your bourbon's coming out clear and white and pure. If it is, you're putting it in aluminum barrels. I have a gigantic Budweiser plant right up the street here. It's been near. They have the Clydesdales and everything. And I went in, and you know that they use aluminum kegs, not white oak kegs, but they throw right big chips of beechwood in to make it taste right. like beechwood. So do you guys sell lumber for staves and for bourbon barrels and things like that too?
0: No. And, and see, that's the again, that, that's what we're trying to lobby because in, in the bourbon industry, especially in, in Kentucky there, um, is that they have to use a white oak charred barrel. Charred, yep. And it's only going you know, to have one use. Again, we're, we're trying to say the same thing. like, hey, you know what? It'll be much easier for you guys and probably a lot less expensive then you just have the, 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 these barrels that you can reuse, and we'll sell you the chips, all right? Because we got plenty of chips that we can make, and the bourbon still is brown, right? But we we can't get them to pass along Kentucky yet, uh, and that's really unfortunate. Like I said, that really the the stays in the bourbon industry has really driven up the price of of your white oak logs, which makes it really difficult for us to to compete against them uh, when obviously bourbon's selling a lot more than than what our <laughs> our rift and quartered uh, yeah, especially
1: if you get a name for yourself, yeah. Um, <laughs> like it, it, you've said it before. There's there's two almost levers, as you call it. I call it volume and tone. What are, there's two controlling factors. It's the cost of logs and what else. The price. The price of the average price of the
0: lumber. Okay. The yeah, average price of the lumber that's going out, yeah.
1: Can you control production versus demand at all? Can, like You've seen it in these lumber mills. They call and they go, we don't have any wood. The price goes up to five thirty nine. Then they go, could you buy you know, three pallets uh, or three truckloads of number three common? Well, we don't sell that here. I know, but we need you to sell it because our building's full of it. Are these lumber plates, especially the flooring players, are they? can they control their production versus their demand at all? Or are they just winging it?
0: Um, it's really, for, for us, it's, it's difficult because we're in those, the midst of those conversations right now is obviously the, the, the fluorine is, is dried up. Uh, and again, and when you're producing 20% rift at 80%, um, quartered and then half your quartered is, is your lower grade, um, and they're not buying it. And so, you know, for us, we have to make sure that we have the, the quantities of the rift that's required at the same time, trying to, to. Slow our production enough where we're not swimming in your in your low grade lumber. So so yeah so you know we and as I, I mentioned earlier, we're much more in control of that now. Is, is what does it look like? How can we slow the mill down? How can we we do all these things? Um, so yeah, but that that's again for us it's really tough because you you don't want to be out of a specific um, grade or, or, or rifter versus quartered. At the same time, you can't be swimming in either. And and I said that for that two years, what 21 through 23, or really the first half of 23, we had no problem selling everything. Uh, and all of a sudden it's kind of slowed back up. Where, you know, pre pre-COVID days is kind of you never had the 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 whole log selling at the same time, right? You always had soft spots in it. And so like I said we've really been after this, well, probably for 10 years at least. What does that look like? What is the ultimate, you know, um Kind of lumber on hand versus what's in process, um, and again, like you said, it's it's really difficult because for us, when by the time we buy a, a log, we probably have four to six weeks of of log inventory that we have to use. And we cut it, and then it has to go through the you know we uh, air dry it, then we pre dry it, and then we we put it through the kilns, and so that's a six month process. So try to de- try to predict the demand in in this industry. 6 months out has not been easy.
1: I want to talk to you a little bit about quality control because lumber mills are a little bit different and I think I find that depending on where you are in the country there's some places they just I don't know what it is. There's a quality control difference. I don't know who's working in those mills or if, if the deep south is different than the north. Like we say it here, listen, we have Appalachian lumber coming out of yeah. mountain ranges where the trees take 50 years to grow and they got some down in apalachicola it takes an hour and a half to grow a tree and it's on a truck and it's full of (laughs) there is a difference geographically in the quality of lumber right how do how is it that you how do you guys what you do set the bar for the actual quality of the material because it's okay to have some stuff around that's not so great
0: yeah You, you know i really um for us it was because that we started off this whole process with the japanese okay and the Japanese are very articulate. I mean, I just remember they would come through and, and, and they were criticizing us that oh, you only had ninety eight point five percent you know quality to hit our specs, right. <laughs> and we're like yay, right? We're we're like yay, and they're like no, no, we need you to go back and explain to us what you're going to change in your process to get that hundred percent. And it used to drive us crazy here, but what it did, you know, to, to your point there, is it drove our quality control to to another level, and so when you look at it, even when Taylor was in business and a lot of other ones, when you when you put up our lumber versus some of our competitors, and, and they're better today, but but still, you know, when you take a look at the quality and, and what we do here, um, it's it's really top notch, best of the industry. And again, we have a, a quality control manager that actually will will do spot checks through that, but we also have some some quality controls on, on the line and and whatnot. So. Uh, yeah, I think it's really, it's critical, but I think it all grew back from our roots and, and really that whole Japanese at 98.5 is not good enough. Do you
1: think it's cyclical? Like, what is it that, that, that the, there are complaints. We get them in flooring and I don't care what we sell. People will say, I use that brand, it's the greatest. And someone will be the first person to get a hiccup and go, I'll never use that brand again. The, is, it's kind of cyclical, right? What triggers complaints in the lumber industry?
0: You know, it's it's, it's interesting. So for us, as when... Uh, when the demand is high, you don't get any complaints about, oh, I mean, you, no. can, you know, <laughs> I'll take it all. Like Just sell us as much as you can. Yeah. When it slows up, all of a sudden, oh, you know, again, that, yeah, that's not a select and better, right? That's, that, you know, it's got a couple of knots in it or it's got this. And and and, and we've been really fortunate, I, I would say, with our customers and, and we've built a lot of relationships over the years with, with our customers that th- there's a lot of give and take, you know, um, what our our policy is, if the customer's got a complaint, we're probably going to honor that we're going we're gonna you know, make sure that they they validate it and verify that hey there is an actual defect there or, or whatever, but we pretty much honor you know the discrepancies and, and have the conversations where like you said you know we're not just shipping it and say ah sorry, you know point5 is is good enough, and you should just accept what we send you um, so but there is there is that that, that dialogue and, and I said and when they do have complaints, and I really I haven't seen one in in, in quite some time. Uh, So they're handling it without without me uh, looking at that. But yeah, we I think we did a a really good job in in talking about the complaints and try to make our process better.
1: Don't you feel that we're still in an industry where this is a natural resource and people you put it in their home in any form and they expect it to perform like it was made of aluminum in a jig somewhere. I've had people I'm like, they go, what is this? It shouldn't look like this. I go, it's a tree. Hi, I'm Earth. Have we met? I was out there. Just a while ago, and we cut it down, and we killed it for you, and we replanted a few of them, and now yeah. it's in your home, and you want it to behave like a like a piece of aluminum. It's a tree; it has yeah. natural properties, and,
0: and, and that's a sad thing, and that's an educational piece, in my opinion, because again, they can get a laminate or a vinyl, and while the vinyl doesn't do that, it looks. I'm like, that's why you buy vinyl. You, you know, th- this is the whole process of why you would buy a hardwood, right? You, you buy it. For the aesthetics, you buy it because it's a it, it sequesters the carbon, and I mean it, all the stuff that that we don't talk about enough, and, and it also looks beautiful, right? So you have this natural growing tree that is now part of your house, and, and it's a beautiful piece of furniture, flooring, cabinet, whatever it is. But somehow we've gotten to this age where everything has to be perfect. You know, we we, we just go to IKEA and we'll buy whatever. i that's good for three years okay Again, ours can last 100 just just so we're all aware on on the same page as, as.
1: if the, that's where the kiln drying process came from listen if the floors are comfortable you're comfortable i've been in a claim once i walked in the door i almost got sick it was so dry so hot the woman's lips were bleeding. She had a gallon of hand cream she kept roaming on. Her cabinets were split. The walls were split. And I'd never seen anything this dry in my life. And it's, you know, there's that comfort zone between 35 and 55%. If you're comfortable, your floors are comfortable. Your building materials are comfortable. You know, somebody, the pioneers, knew to quarter things, they knew how to make things stable. Going to downtown Boston. Net fit thirty thousand feet to a brick wall. It's all quartered. They knew what they were doing with the stuff, you know. And then today, like said, you-
0: it's, it's the sustainability of that and, and the the reliability, durability that's going to last forever. You know, the, the built we we use that all the time, right? It's like look, looks like they're brand new. I mean, all, all all the 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 flooring in there and, and the millwork. Looks like they just put it in yesterday.
1: What can you... Is there anything that you can do? Because we get this in our industry. Up here in New England, one of the problems where I am, it started out as Stuart Clear. The market became a Stewart Clear market. No lumberyards, nothing. It just became that's what got here. So the bar was raised. If you didn't have fabulon finish and super Clear clear flooring, you didn't get the job. It took 40 years to get Select and Better to be acceptable. So today no one up here has heard of number one number two number three and when we opened make in georgia we couldn't make any money because they wanted to buy millions of feet of number three at 99 cents we're up here selling it for 489 and everybody has to have clear what can you do with low grade lumber
0: ah uh, if i if i if i knew the answer to that question I probably have my own company right now.
1: See, there you go, right? <laughs> Low grade lumber company.
0: You, you, you know, I, I think you know for, for us at, on the, and we're we're just now exploring some other alternatives. You know, is it possible to make a stave out of it? Is it possible to do some other stuff? Is, is it possible to look at some foreign markets that that might be able to take some of that stuff? You know, the, the problem that that you all run into is that. Most of that stuff there, except for the staves, will we'll, we'll pay you, but most everybody's not going to pay you, right? They're not going to pay you for that, uh, that kind of lumber. And, and that's the, the issue that we run into is that we can't, we can't get the cost back out of it uh, if we're selling it into at least uh, export markets initially. You know, for, for us is they want and, – and again, part of, part of us is, is because we only have 2% of the market share – we're not out there promoting the, the quartered and ripped piece of it. So most of the other countries don't understand that you, they need to pay a premium value for that, right? They're looking at, you know, they, they look at quartered and they're like, Oh, well, that's a defect. That's a defect. Then you're going to give me a discount for the quartered and not a premium. And that's what we've run into really in, in some, like say, you know, um, China, uh, Vietnam, some of the other places over there. But, you know, there, there are some stuff I, I think, you know, for us, we were actually talking about that today. If we could figure out how to, Take the saw and rotate the saw to cut more rift and and, 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 and get more of that versus some of your your quartered common. Uh, but I don't again I don't think the laws of physics work yet uh, for that. So you're you're just kind of left with it and hoping that that somehow this real American hardwood coalition promotion can work with with some of the wood flooring and, and we get some of the the wood flooring back that I think we've lost to to the substitutes.
1: Where where are you with uh, pellets? It's funny. I all our mills sell pellets, and then I try to see if I can buy a few truckloads for my neighborhood. And they're like, "We don't let the stove people sell flooring. We're not going to let you buy pellets." Uh, that is a uh, uh, something that is a solution in what you do, right? That waste goes into yeah, so the kiln. Or- so
0: we we have a kind of a, a partner that that takes all our pallet material, and, and again, we let them do all the work. We just we get paid for the the pallet piece of it.
1: Gotcha. Uh, just to, before I go on to my rapid-fire questions and let you escape, um, and we went over a lot about leadership centers, I think people, when they go back listen to this podcast for Woodfloor Businesses, to listen to some of that because – that defining your leadership role in business is really important. It's what makes groups and teams successful. When you have leaders and you bring in that compilation of minds together, you start to set goals, which is the key to all of it. And once you have your goal set up for you, whether it's lumber, hardwood flooring, install, sand, and finish any part of our industry, uh, looking for excellence and quality in what you do, it's 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 catchy and it's entertaining.
0: We, you know, it's interesting. I you know, I made the comment before. If you have that leadership, it doesn't matter what business you're in, right? Is is that because same thing here? I you know I'm I'm 12 years into the, the lumber industry. There's still a whole lot that I have no idea on what happens in, in the lumber industry. But what I I do know is that I, I bring people together, right? Build build that team of of like-minded um, people. And When I say like-minded, is that the um, curious mindset, right? Is that we're always thinking, we're always looking at for opportunities always looking for a better way and and not letting our egos get in in the way. That's why I I talk about that, that mindset, you know, it it doesn't matter. Like I said, I know that if I, if I need a technical aspect, I'm going to my VP of operations. He he understands that. If I have a sales question, I'm going to go to my VP of sales, you know? So I think really it's important. And I think that's where we started to see that shift is that it's just about leadership, right? Is that togetherness, uh, and I, and I made the statement before, you know, I trust this team with my life. And I know when I say that, it, it sounds kind of dramatic. It's like, well, you're not out there. You're not in the military and it's so all this other stuff. I said, but you know, I make decision. I'm, I'm part of a team that makes a decision that could be the, the life or death of this company. And so you have to trust the individuals wholeheartedly when, when they come together and say, Hey, here's where we're going to go. And here's the direction that we need to go. And, and I think that's, when you can have a team like that, you know that you've been successful.
1: You know, that's a good point because I, I started a business when I was really young. My dad owned a large corporation, and then I uh, started my flooring company, and then wholesale distribution. One of the things I found is it, at the level that you're at, people wear a lot of hats. That's that's cool in the beginning. Everybody's very proud somebody asked me in an interview, they go, it says here that you do consulting, this and that, but what is all this other stuff? I go, hey, when we started Woodpro, I'm the guy that took care of the claims, the legal, represented them in court. I also had better get the bark mulch under the stuff out front, go to the mailbox, <laughs> uh, take people, drop them off to pick up their kids or their car, whatever it takes. But I did find, as we got bigger and bigger and bigger, even to it, with Horizon Force products, that – you have to switch gears. People can't be finagling around with wearing every hat that they're proud of now like, "Oh, we, well, we all drove a truck." No, people need to focus, like you're saying, understand who you are in this game and where are you in the chess match? You can't be the king, the queen, the pawn. You have to be something and I found that my team did was more successful when each person did exactly what they needed to do perfectly well.
0: Yeah, you know that I mean that, that's that's critical. Because we still want to do all the other things that we used to do, yeah, right? To show everybody I'm one of the guys. And, 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 and as I've told them, it's kind of funny because obviously, you know, you, you know, I have the, the accounting and finance background. Yep. Hardest thing for me to do is let my CFL go do what he does best. Right. And so it was a conscious effort that I, I'm like, you know what? Because I was dabbling, right? And I, I tell him, hey, and I I've been thinking about something. And he's like, I wish you'd stop thinking, okay? If, it, if it's one thing that you're thinking about systems or whatever, that that's great. He said, but, you know, I, I need you to be the CEO. I need to be the CFO and let the decisions run through me. And I think that's critical for all of us as we've stepped up. And and I think, like I said, all of us have this specialty that we love to do. And I said, uh, the hardest thing for a leader is to not necessarily not be involved and so not need to be a counselor or, and, and a mentor and all that other stuff, but let them do the assignment. Sure. Uh, as a leader, that's the most difficult thing that, that they have to do is let go of the, I'll call it the uh, Maxwell puts it great. He said, you have to give up the good to get to great. To great. It, it, and that's and hard, right? Is what does that mean? But it's like, Hey, give up some of the stuff. If you really have aspirations to do something else, you got to give up some of that stuff. And, as a leader, it's, it's I said, it, it initially it's tough.
1: Yeah. How do you see the great when you're in it and not take a back step to being good?
0: <laughs> right, you know, It was funny. I actually, I actually asked Maxwell that question last year when I was with him. Yep. I'm like, okay, John, I, I love this question. I said, but how, how do I know that I'm giving up the good and how do I know what I'm going to go to is great? And he goes, Steve, you'll know when you know. And I'm right. like, okay, thank you for, for nothing, right?
1: You'll, you'll know when you know. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, coach. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I'll know when I take a back step in the wrong direction. <laughs>
0: yeah. and, and if you, you don't know, then you'll just, it'll be a lesson that you learned, and you just move on. All
1: right. I'm going to give you some rapid-fire questions. Let's see. Just, just quick, short answers, whatever you can come up with. Are you ready, sir? Ready. All right. Steve James. Who plays you in a Lifetime movie special? Who
0: plays me in a Lifetime special? Uh, probably Steve Martin.
1: Oh, it's my favorite. Uh, what would you do if you just right now, you had a five-minute break. What do you do?
0: What do I do? Yep. F- um, five minutes. You have five minutes. Five minutes. I, I'm probably deciding what book I'm going to read next.
1: Okay. Uh, if you weren't in manufacturing, what do you think you would be doing?
0: You, you know, it's funny. Um, actually, when I started out uh, going to college, I was going to be a, a, a psychologist. Oh. Um, so if I wasn't in manufacturing, you know, I, I looked at that. Uh, we talked earlier, if it wouldn't have cost me so much to, to, to actually get my, get my uh, PhD in, in, in psychology, I probably would have went that route. Uh, but I look at, at this as my leadership, really, I get to play psychologist and mentor and coach and, and all those different things and, and um, still get to do my, my regular my regular job. Like psychology.
1: College. Boom. Uh, what's, what's the best thing about um, your company, about the Frank Miller Lumber Company? What's the best thing about it?
0: You know, it, it really is the people. Um, I, I, I said, I, I've always looked at it as that. I think that's my biggest accomplishment here is, is how the, the people view me and, and, and how they interact with me. It's just the people.
1: What, what's something in your life that's probably made you the most proud?
0: Uh, the most proud? Um, probably, you know, getting married to my wife and, and having me, you know, stay humble for, for 36 years now.
1: Good answer. you have a favorite pastime?
0: Favorite pastime, um, you know, so, so I actually have a pond at my house, so, so fishing and golf would, would probably be one, two, uh, and you can switch them on, on the day, right?
1: I love it. If, they get, if I could stop at every pond that I knock a ball into and just throw a fishing line out there, I'd be good to go. <laughs> Final question, do you have carpeting in your home?
0: I do not. Good Good answer.
1: Well, listen. I we will talk again sometime. I really, really, really appreciate you being on the All Things Wood Floor podcast and helping us with wood floor business. They were very excited that you and I get a chance to talk because that's what you and I do.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> who, who would have believed it, right? I, I, you know, growing up, they were like he, he, Steve would never talk, right? I would never be like this. And I, I was a, I was an introverted kind of math whiz when I was when I was younger. And they're like, I don't. They, I tell them that, and they're like, I don't believe you. I'm like. I, I know. Again, you have to grow into your role, right? It
1: turned on you. It, that's exactly <laughs> what happens. I used to talk. They'd have to take my mouth shut. Now I just want to go hide somewhere.
0: <laughs> Listen,
1: thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. We will We will talk again soon. All right. Sounds good, Steve. All right. Take care, buddy.
0: Right.
1: Yep. See ya Bye-bye.
2: This episode was sponsored by Frank Miller Lumber, a family-run business specializing in the manufacture of quarter sawn hardwood lumber. You can find more information at frankmiller.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode of All Things Wood Floor. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review All Things Wood Floor.